0: You're listening to the new security broadcast from the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program. I'm Claire Doyle, and today's episode is part of a special mini-series exploring the UN Climate Summit's new focus on relief, recovery, and peace. You may have heard that for the first time, the annual Conference of Parties, or COP, will include the theme of peace. In the lead up to the summit, we're sitting down with experts to discuss the implications of including peace as an explicit focus at this year's COP28 and what kinds of opportunities the conference might offer to move the needle on climate, conflict and peace together. In this episode, ECSP Director Lauren Reese sits down with Iris Ferguson, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Arctic and Global Resilience. Ms. Ferguson has extensive experience working on the Arctic and climate issues, and in her current role, she is the Principal Advisor to the Secretary of Defense and other senior leadership working on policy regarding Arctic security and global resilience to include efforts on climate adaptation, mitigation, and energy resilience. Iris,
1: thank you very much for being here with us this morning. Um, Let's start with talking about your role at DOD. You're the first Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Arctic and Global Resilience. That's a really interesting title. Uh, the fact that the Arctic is specifically mentioned in the title and then in terms of global resilience. Right. So can you tell us about your role?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me here today. It's a real privilege to be here. Um, Yeah, I'm the first uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Arctic and Global Resilience within OSD policy. And we're really charged with providing advice to the Secretary um, and and looking at our broad strategic guidance documents and our policies and trying to make sure that we are tackling what's on the horizon. And so for this administration, uh, we've created a DASI ship focusing on Arctic and global resilience issues. What does that mean in practice? It means looking at the Arctic region, how it's unfolding in a myriad of ways, how our competitors are acting in the region, um, understanding what it means for the military and how we operate there. Do we have the right capabilities? we have the right enabling capabilities like communications and domain awareness? And how are we working with our allies and partners to ensure that we have uh, interoperability and that we're working together in order to keep the region um, peaceful and stable in the, in the long term? And then on global resilience, uh, we're really in charge with looking at how the department is um, interpreting and thinking about climate risk and climate change. We're trying to infuse climate within our myriad of documents and topics around climate change and climate risk into our national defense strategy, our national security strategy, and also in operationalizing uh, those documents and looking at how we're utilizing war games, um, interpreting risk in our combatant commands, but also how we're looking at leveraging uh, the immense transition that's happening within energy and how the DoD is positioning itself to be uh, in a position of strategic advantage as we navigate the transition, not only as a society, but also as an agency.
1: And you mentioned energy. what is the DoD's energy sort of footprint? like why, why does mm. energy matter in terms of the climate conversation in
2: DoD? Yeah well, DoD um, has an immense energy footprint. Uh, we have some you know, five hundred thousand plus installations across over 4,700 locations worldwide. So our physical footprint is really massive uh, and our operational footprint is massive too. Uh, we burn a lot of fuel to get places where we need to go. Um, and it's really important that we in, you know, ensure our mission effectiveness and our ability to, to move rapidly where we need to go, but that does have a footprint to it. Um, there, so we're really looking holistically at one, how much energy are we using on the ground uh, at our installations, how can we be uh, use that energy more smartly through, we're putting in software into our installations and uh, putting in smart meters in order to track energy more effectively. But also, um, how are what are we using from our platforms? Not only does it make sense for the environment, of course, but it really makes sense from a warfighter perspective to reduce the amount of energy that we're, we're using um, in a, in some of our. Um, a myriad of war games that we're undertaking in every combatant command and every service. There's a, a critical liability that continues to be pointed to when we look at climate war games. When we look at uh, when we look at some of our operational energy war games, and that's the fuel. Fuel is very heavy. Um, it's very logistically complicated for um, us to transport. It's often a point of attack for our adversaries, but. But often, when we are able to have marginal increases of efficiency, there's, it's a margin of victory. So how can we uh, ensure that we're having the right levels of efficiency and we're promoting efficiency within our platforms through software that will provide more efficient routing for sorties, for example, or bolting on drag reduction devices to our aircraft, um, and then making some big bets in technology um, to try to move beyond our traditional platforms like tube and wing body design for aircraft to more blended wing body aircraft that would increase our efficiency by 30%. So there's a real warfighter rationale for a lot of the work that we're doing in the DoD, but that in the end also um, helps our footprint.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It you know makes DoD part of the mitigation story mm-hmm. as well as the adaptation story. So since day one, the Biden administration has been sort of uh, trying to be forward leaning on climate change, working to integrate it across the interagency, thinking about climate security risks, thinking about climate's connection to migration, thinking about water and climate. From your perspective at DOD, how have you seen climate security being prioritized by the Biden administration?
2: Yeah. Th- thanks so much for that question. Yeah. I, th- I think we're seeing it prioritized in a number of ways. First is certainly the creation of my office uh, is, a, is a good sign um, that they're taking the climate crisis seriously and are trying to put some really heavy strategic thinking into what the department needs to do to be able to, to navigate the climate crisis. Uh, but this is uh, also not something that's new in a lot of ways for the DOD as well. Um, it's a, maybe a different level of emphasis, but the interest that the DOD has in navigating climate crisis are, are longstanding. We have a a huge footprint, as I've already mentioned, but we have uh, operations around the globe, uh, and we have a real need to ensure that we have the right housing, equipping, training, that we are prepared for a changing operating environment, uh, and that these issues um, are are ones that are going to be core to our planning going forward. So uh, I just want to emphasize that this is not something that's entirely new for the department. Uh, We've been, since the beginning of the administration, Um, Have had a myriad of documents that have come out uh, where we're we're ensuring that climate and the climate crisis is a part of the the core foundation from our national defense strategy to our national security strategy, and also recently the defense climate risk assessment that came out um, just in in 2021 last year that outlines some of the uh, the challenges to our operating environment in our theaters where we see uh, the potential drivers of instability and conflict in a variety of these theaters, whether it be in our own homeland actually from extreme weather or in the Arctic where we're seeing an increasing amount of activity from our competitors or in the Indo-Pacific where we see sea level rise impacting many of our, our partner nations. And, and to that end, you know we're really thinking heavily and listening to our partners in a lot of ways. As they say, that climate security and the climate... Challenge is one of their most critical, if not their most important national security threat. So a lot of the work of my office is actually looking at how we're working with our allies and partners to bolster their climate resilience. We have a new pilot program that was authorized by Congress just last year. So last year was um, their first year, and it's called Defense Operational Resilience International Cooperation Program, uh, DORIC for short. Uh, And we're really trying to uh, use that to help build military-to-military cooperation. on on building and adapting to climate uh, challenges. Our combatant commands have uh, been talking with our partners and have been convening our partners. Just last year at AFRICOM, they used some of this funding to pull together um, some 20-odd nations in the Africa theater to talk talk and hear how they're responding to the climate crisis. For many militaries, they are the first responders to climate disaster. Uh, So not only are we trying to convene and try to share best practices, but we're also looking at tools that we can help um, provide to them as well and trying to uh, build out our own tool suite that we can use to provide early warning.
1: That's interesting. So have have these efforts led to to new partnerships and lines of, of effort? Like, can you walk us through what those look like? There's a number of strategies and documents, and you just gave some great examples of how these are translated into action on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but what else can you tell us?
2: Yeah, so I, you know, every combatant command has their own um, has their own operating theater, and they uh, the folks on the ground are charged with you know thinking through different partnerships that are important. Uh, for the combatant command itself. And also trying to, again, listen to our partners and understand what is impacting them. How can we help our partners with some of their most challenging strategic needs? And time and again, climate continues to rise to the top of that list, whether you're in the CENTCOM AOR, or you're in AFRICOM, or you're in Indo-PACOM. The Pacific Islands have certainly been a huge area of emphasis and focus for the administration, but also for the DOD. um, And really working to try to understand how we can give those island nations in particular, the tools they need for early warning um, and disaster response. Also, uh, we're we're really heavily focused on building partnerships with some of our like-minded partners as well. Just in a week, we're hosting the first-of-its-kind forum out in San Diego, where we're pulling together uh, a little under 10 treaty allies for the United States to talk about how our respective countries are thinking about the climate security challenge how are we incorporating these into our strategic guidance documents Uh, what are some lessons learned there how are we operationalizing these strategies uh, in our our individual uh, realms and what can we what kind of tools can we share whether it be war gaming or analysis of platforms for example some of the analysis that we're doing is pretty profound on how climate is going to impact our ability to operate Uh, For example, uh, a submarine sonar capability will not be the same when the ocean temperatures are warmer, or a C-17 that is trying to operate in actually temperatures that are predicted just 16 years from now, they will be much warmer, and our C-17 will lose 8% lift capacity, which is pretty dramatic when you're talking about planning and operations, uh, where one of your most critical platforms for providing cargo might not be able to fit as many humans or goods as you were expecting. And so we're looking at trying to um, you know swap some of those best practices and analysis, but also looking at what technology um, are we collectively investing in. Uh, we'll be showcasing technology that um, that we're investing in but also some private sector companies that are be um, really at the forefront of the energy transition and how we can uh, make sure that as we're navigating the energy transition that we're doing so together with a focus on interoperability.
1: that's interesting. that's great um, so Thinking uh, forwards towards COP28 in the UAE and its uh, recognition of relief, recovery, and peace as a a programmatic theme, Um, and DOD is going to have a strong presence at COP this year, right? Can you tell us about uh, your plans for COP and how you see uh, COP's role in supporting global resilience efforts?
2: Yeah, well, thanks so much. Yeah, we're really pleased to have the opportunity to lend our voice to the discussions that are happening at COP, um, especially given the focus this year on relief, recovery, and peace. Um, As you mentioned, we'll have our our largest and most senior delegation um, that we've ever had at COP this year, which is a testament, again, to the the focus that this administration and and the DoD is putting on trying to navigate the the climate crisis. Last year, when we attended for the first time, we had heard um, a lot of our partners wanting more U.S. DoD leadership um, in this space. And so we're excited to be able to go back and have a a bit more of a delegation this year. Um, And we're also really excited that at COP, we hear from voices outside of the Defense Department, Um, this is a really great opportunity for us to hear about other issues that often the Pentagon, you're in a bit of an echo chamber at times. So really excited to hear perspectives outside of the DOD. We're co-hosting an event with the State Department and a think tank focus on sustainable development and and human security, for example. And we're hoping to use that model of that broader interagency approach um, at other engagements in COP. Uh, And in addition to some of the um, the stories that we will hopefully tell around building climate resilience and security of our partners and some of the examples that I've already mentioned um, to you and, and through some of our security cooperation programming. I think there's also a really compelling story to tell about how we're navigating the, the energy transition um, and that we're really looking to use the DOD's unique ability to catalyze innovation, and energy efficiency, and low carbon technology, and, and resilient infrastructure um, that we're planning and resourcing to that effect, um, that, you Just last year, we spent some $3 billion in uh, bolstering our own climate and energy um, resourcing within the department. We're really focused heavily on improving efficiency uh, because of the warfighter advantages that it gains. And we're really looking at building resilience within our installations by trying to think through where our energy supplies are coming from and how we can build more resilient models for energy supply, because we don't want to be having our supply coming from a place of vulnerability for us. Looking at how we can install microgrids at, a, at at our critical infrastructure, and that as we're navigating this transition, that we're really we're focusing on being unbeholden to our competitors in that sense as well.
1: Yeah, I mean the, so thinking about the energy transition, you've you've been you've made it very clear about how impactful climate change is on DoD's mission and readiness, right? But also what the response to climate change means for DoD. Um, and recognizing that there are a lot of, um, you know, with the Israel-Hamas war and the war in Ukraine, there's all of these priorities pulling mm-hmm. on on DOD strings. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you ensure that climate change continues to be on the agenda mm-hmm. and and is in, pa- in fact, part of those conversations, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not distinct as well.
2: Yeah, I know. I think it's really, it's a salient point. Um, and that's one of the privileges of having an office in policy, quite frankly, that um, is charged with this, exact, um, with, with this exact challenge, is how do you ensure that... In everything you're doing, you're considering climate and the energy transition as part of the foundational rubric. Where, where, where is the risk that is on the horizon and that needs to continue, that needs to be part of the equation as you're thinking about um, different conflicts that arise, whether it be um, the Ukraine uh, uh, war, which has seen a lot of actual lessons learned around operational energy and how we transport fuel and how we provide real necessary. Um, capabilities to our Ukrainian partners. Um, there's a r- real climate and energy nexus to that, um, whether it be you know ensuring that we have the right, fuel distribution, or that we encourage the right uh, distributed generation of energy um, there, or the logistics train that has had challenges because of the changing soil content. So there's a lot of um, eye-opening, I think, happening around this topic, but continuing to make sure that um, it's part of the broader risk calculus that we need to consider going forward because it makes strategic sense.
1: So one more question for you, you know, thinking about this, the fact that you're in a new position, could you tell us a little bit about the path that you took Mm. to becoming the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Arctic and Global Resilience and what guidance you might give to young professionals today hoping to follow in your tracks?
2: Yeah, no, and it's a really great question. And, and you know, D.C. is uh, filled with people that have come here and navigated their way into various positions. And um, I came from Arkansas. Uh, I had no exposure to D.C. So if that gives anybody, a, um, I guess, a, a positive story, uh, that you don't have to come here with connections in order to make um, to to have really influential and, and meaningful careers in D.C. So yeah, I moved here out of grad, sc- at undergrad and um, kind of just tried my, my hand working on Capitol Hill. Um, I put my resume into the Senate placement office, which is often a black hole for resumes. But randomly, Senator Biden's office actually ended up picking my resume out. And um, and I worked as the in the front office there, uh, answering phones as a staff assistant. Not a glorious position by any means. Um, and my heart goes out to all staff assistants on Capitol Hill. It's one of the most challenging jobs um, that is, is unsung. Uh, but but, but uh, you know, was, I worked on um, in Senator Biden's office for about three years, and moved over to the Foreign Relations Committee, um, and was really fortunate enough to be able to work with really incredible mentors like Tony Blinken and Brian McEwen, who was previously at DOD, and of course now President Biden. Uh, And and since then, I have had a myriad of different jobs within the Obama administration, working at the Department of Commerce and International Trade, um, and then in the Air Force, working on climate and Arctic issues. And at the end of the Obama administration, I was asked to to stick around uh, within the Air Force to help them think about their Arctic strategy. Admittedly, I didn't think that was going to be a long tenured Position given the um, that I had been a previously part of the Obama administration, but um, the work that we were doing was really bipartisan in nature. It was you know we were really trying to help the DoD think constructively about what it needs to do and be to operate in the Arctic as it's changing. Um, and I think there was a lot of support for for that kind of thinking uh, within the DoD. And somehow you know, I was there for five years, and when this position was created, um, was asked to try to stand this office up. So uh, it's been an unpredictable career. In a lot of ways that I would never have um, expected when I was 22, or let alone you know three years ago, um, that this position, you know, you don't know what's going to come your way in this city, but there's just an immense amount of opportunity, and I think as this. Um, this subject matter, in particular, navigating the climate crisis, continues to grow. There are going to be an increasing amount of positions, and I'm so grateful that there's a young generation of folks that are thinking really hard about these issues and what it means for the U.S. to position itself in a way that we're being strategic, uh, that we're keeping mindful of, of risks that are on the horizon, but that we're also trying to position ourselves in a place of strategic advantage. Um, so that the decisions that we make now are going to have uh, implications for decades to come.
1: Good note to end on. Thank you very much for being here with us today. And thanks for all the good work you're doing at DOD. Great. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: You've been listening to the New Security Broadcast at the Wilson Center. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, follow us on Twitter at New Security Beat and visit newsecuritybeat.org.